Hello and welcome to the Chess Journal Podcast, where each month we host a discussion with the authors of important articles from the current issue of the journal, adding context and commentary to the challenges facing clinicians in the fields of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. To introduce today's topic, here's your host, Dr. Dominique Pepper. On behalf of CHEST, I'd like to welcome you to this month's CHEST podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and I'm the moderator of the CHEST podcast section. Thank you for all joining us today for what will be a really great conversation on the long-term outcomes following critical care discharge. Today, as our guest, we are fortunate to have Dr. McPeak, and we will discuss her article entitled, Multimorbidity and its Relationship with Long-Term Outcomes Following Critical Care Discharge, a Prospective Cohort Study. Dr. McPeak, can you please introduce yourself? Hi there. My name is Joanne McPeak. I'm a nurse consultant in NHS Greater Glasgow and Clyde, and I'm also a research fellow um, and from the um, Institute of Healthcare Improvement at the University of Cambridge. Excellent pleasure to have you on the podcast with us, Joanne. We also have Dr. Flotten, who provided the guest editorial, and that was entitled... Long-Term Outcomes After Critical Care, Another Brick in the Wall. Uh, Hans, could you please introduce yourself? Yeah. <clears throat> I'm uh, Hans Knappen, Professor in Intensive Care at the University of Bergen. And I've also been the head of the general ICU for 25 years before I uh, stopped and are now a consultant there some years ago. So it's a kind of approaching... Uh, uh, Retirement, no, but uh, I'm looking forward to this event. Yeah, an absolute pleasure to have both of you on the podcast, and great to have you, Hunter. Hopefully, uh, we can get a lot of um, your expertise on this very important topic. Um, so, Hans, maybe you could kick off the discussion for us. Um, why is it so important for us to assess the impact of comorbid illnesses on long-term outcomes following critical care discharge? Yeah, a very good question and, uh, and a very important one because um, the intensive care society has for decades been occupied with um, with outcomes, but mostly with survival or not. In the beginning, it was short-term survival, usually after the uh, ICU stay or maybe hospital stay. Then it gradually increased until we got numbers of longer-term survival as well. But in particular, with the um, emergence of uh, the very old patients in the ICU, and with the very old patients, I mean those above 80, um, it's obviously that survival is not um, more than maximum half the, the picture. Um, as crucial is what life do we, do we give them after intensive care? Um, this has also been the focus in uh, in other ICU patients for for uh, many years, but have been overshadowed by mortality. So, I really think that we need to focus very much more. Uh, and the present pandemic is a very good example of that. We have a lot of mortality data, but not so much of health-related quality of life. It starts to come, and it looks troublesome, I must say. So um, that's my general view of this. So 
definitely important. Uh, mortality is an important outcome, but as you correctly say, uh, we need to look at other outcomes uh, that relate to patient quality of life. And then the question for you, Hans, also is why are comorbid illnesses or comorbidities important to assess on uh, long-term outcomes? Yes. Um, I would rather say that a more problematic thing and a multi-morbid patient is um, when you have two or more different coexisting chronic conditions at the same time. Um, and we gradually try to shift the focus to multimorbidity and not only comorbidity because hypertension, ischemic heart disease, cardiac uh, arrhythmias, etc., etc., is is one disease. So if you have this in addition to a chronic lung disease, you have a multimorbidity. So um, it is very important. But um, since we do not have much data on multimorbidity, most on comorbidity, this is what we are stuck with. But again, back to the elderly, comorbidity is maybe overshadowed by, for example, frailty, cognition, and also activity of daily life, um, which are items that are poorly um, taken up by a comorbidity score alone. Great. So, Joanne, I want to pull you into this discussion. Maybe for our audience, you can define for us what is multimorbidity and um, what outcomes you would consider important in uh, assessing uh, long-term. Yeah, so thank you again for um, the invitation to participate today. So from our perspective um, and for the perspective of the paper, we've defined multimorbidity as the presence of two or more comorbidities. There's, it's really important to look at this because, as we've just heard, we know that patients often survive intensive care, but the quality of life which they return to um, can be really challenging. And that, that has an impact on the individual, but it has an impact on our wider society as well. We know, for example, only 50% of our patients who were in employment before intensive care will get back to employment at one year. So it's really, really important that we understand the long-term trajectory of these patients so that we can support them best in the months and years following critical care discharge and really help build effective interventions to support them and their family and wider society more effectively. Definitely. So let's jump into your study, Joanne. Um, what was the rationale for your study and what were its uh, primary objectives? So the rationale for our study was that we wanted, we had a unique opportunity um, to look at UK Biobank data. Now, the UK Biobank um, is exactly what it says on the tin. It's a large prospective health resource for researchers in the UK. And between 2006 and 2010, the UK Biobank recruited over half a million participants for research and a battery of assessment, physical, social, economic, psychological, were undertaken in these half-million patients. What was unique about this data set, it was linked to routinely held healthcare records. So we were unable to utilise the data that assessed this battery of assessments with healthcare utilisation in this cohort. So we wanted to look at the critical care population and understand the outcomes of critical care um, patients in the UK biobank population using this really granular data on physical, emotional um, assessment. So we were able to look at comorbidity before 
um, admission to a critical care, which is really unique because we often only have a starting point of admission to critical care to understand trajectory. And the UK Biobank gave us a, a real way of looking at these patients longitudinally, including before intensive care. So to start with, we had kind of two main aims with this study. The first was to look at mortality following critical care discharge in relation to the data that we had pre-intensive care. And we also wanted to look at healthcare utilisation in the year following critical care discharge in this UK biobank population. Yeah, that's a quick, uh, great overview. So let's uh, jump uh, into um, very briefly your methods. And then how did your methods address any limitations that existed in the literature beforehand? Yeah, so I think one of the big things in the literature that we have with critical care groups is that um, we don't have um, good controls. So although we look at patients uh, following critical care discharge and we say, you know, there's evidence in the literature to show that they, for example, have an increased rate of uh, readmission to acute care, we don't know if that's the critical illness that's caused that, the comorbidity that's caused that, or if that's any different to any other hospital group. So what we wanted to address in this um, UK Biobank cohort was, um, was this any different to a hospital, another hospital group? So we undertook propensity score matching with a cohort of patients who had been admitted to critical care, and we compared them to a very, very similar cohort of hospital patients admitted to hospital at the same time without a critical illness. Now, we matched them for a huge range of um, baseline demographics, age, gender, presence of comorbidity, education, employment, the type of admission that they had to hospital, the length of stay they were in hospital, and as well as their physical status before they came into hospital and their ethnicity. And what we were planning to do and what we did do was look at the trajectory of these two cohorts and compared them in the year following discharge. That's a really good uh, overview of your study. Before you jump into your uh, findings, I just want to pull Hans back into the discussion. Uh, uh, Hans, uh, based on the methods, do you want to add anything that uh, struck you about the methods and uh, objectives uh, before Joanne jumps into the uh, findings? Yeah. The first I would say is that this is an elegant way to try to to create um, a control group because, as you said, um, we we have struggled with that for years to have a proper control group. We have tried to um, make the patients their own control group by 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 interviewing them or family at uh, the ICU admission. But of course, much of this will be in hindsight. So the good thing about this is you have a prospective study in the background, never intended to uh, only give data to intensive care patients, but they use this database. And that's why the, um, this study is important, because such biobanks, they pop up uh, many places. Now, in Norway, I think we have three or four different, different biobanks. And the way to use this biobank in order to create uh, a matching control group is, uh, is very good. I will probably be adopted by, by more. The problem is, of course, is the biobank uh, representative for the general population? Are those who, uh, who come to a biobank 
um, are they the, the, the distribution or are there groups of, of, of in the population that probably will never pop up there? So we, we must um, have a little word of caution there. And I would say I'd absolutely agree with that, that we have to really be cautious about how we interpret this because um, at the biobank, wherever we look at this, it's a self-selecting group. So uh, these are people who have um, volunteered their data and volunteered to participate in a research study. However, the UK Biobank is one of the good things is we're able to look at its representativeness across the UK. And we know there is a good representation across, for example, the socioeconomic gradient um, and across the educational spectrum as well. So, yes, huge caution to be taken, but um, the UK Biobank certainly and other biobanks, as we've seen popping up, do take hopefully that into account to a certain extent. Great. So let's jump into your findings, uh, Joanne. What were your key findings, and what did you? Uh, what are the implications of these findings? So essentially, we were able to um, m m match up over three thousand patients in the two cohorts. Um, so there was about fifteen hundred patients in the critical care cohort, and about fifteen hundred patients in the hospital cohort. Um, and what we showed was uniquely that at the, the um, after adjustment for a whole range of baseline demographics, that there was no significant difference in longer-term post-hospital mortality between the critical care and the hospital cohort and across the follow-up period. However, what we did find is that patients with multimorbidity were more likely to die post-intensive care. In terms of healthcare utilisation, however, similar to previous studies, what we've shown is that Patients admitted to critical care were more likely, statistically more likely, to be readmitted to acute care in the year following hospital discharge. And that was after accounting for things like comorbidity, education, um, socioeconomic um, status. Patients who had a critical care admission were more likely to utilise healthcare in the year following discharge. So what did you... Um think was the cause of that, and what are the implications of that finding? Um, so I think the, the main finding for us was in the healthcare utilisation, and what, what we've seen is that, and this is particularly important when we think about um, the current healthcare situation, which I'm sure is uh, similar internationally, is that although we send patients home and we discharge patients from hospital, we have to anticipate that we'll see a large number of these patients back in the months following discharge. So in this group, they had a 30% greater chance of being readmitted in the year following discharge. When we think about the number of critical care survivors that we're seeing following COVID and what those numbers mean for the healthcare system, it's, it's massive. In terms of the reasons why these patients are getting readmitted, um, we weren't able to delineate this from this population, which was a real limitation. But um, when we look at previous evidence, what we know is things like reinfection um, are, are, are a driver um, alongside things like frailty and in-hospital factors like patients who had delirium and patients who were in the hospital longer. So more research is needed around what the actual drivers and mechanisms for readmission are, 
But certainly um, looking at previous evidence, it would be things like reinfection and sepsis during the initial hospitalisation. Hans, let's uh, d d allow you to join this conversation because this is a really important uh, the fact that uh, when we see patients in the ICU, um, we treat them with the hope of improving their outcomes, but knowing that one-third of them will probably end up coming back to a healthcare system within the year um, is devastating news with the, the great financial impact for the public health sector and for the patients themselves. What was your take home from um, uh, this finding, and do you think it's uh, correctable, or can we address it? We can address it. We, we must address it. And um, I think UK have a better track record by giving patients who have been in the ICU um, a better follow-up than at least most other European countries and also my own country as well. We have tried for years to, to have that implemented as an ordinary thing to give patients uh, the option to, to come back to the ICU. But... Um, but uh, this has been a problem even in our country. Um, so, uh, but coming back to the implications of, of these um, findings, of course, this study contradicts what have been uh, the, the major thoughts about the uh, outcome, in particular with regard to survival for years, that this um, uh, increased death will continue for years and years afterwards. And even we have Australian studies that, that uh, for some years ago found that the, the, um, the surplus mortality we have in ICU patients continued for 10 to 15 years. In an, uh, our own study from back to 1990s, we found it for three years. Then it equaled the, the general population. So um, uh, this study implies that the surplus in mortality comes while the patient is in the ICU slash hospital, and after discharge, the further, the further survival is equal in the two groups. And that is holding true for this, for this uh, study and for this group, but I can come back to that uh, a little bit with the limitation of the study because there is limitations that um, make it a little bit difficult to... to um, to say that it goes for all ICU patients. We definitely will come to the limitations. Uh, Joanne, I wanted to ask you about, uh, were you able to drill down on specific comorbid illnesses that were associated with a greater risk of um, healthcare utilization or greater risk of death over the ensuing year? Yeah, so the comorbidities that we found that were um, associated with increased mortality were things like renal disease and liver disease. But interestingly, what we also found was that mental health um, also increased your risk of death and mortality, mental health problems such as a diagnosis of clinical depression. So there was a number of comorbidities and similar to other um, studies, we also found that things like smoking um, pre-ICU then meant that you had a higher chance of mortality in the year following discharge as well. Um, so, yeah, and in terms of an increased risk of readmission, again, we've seen things like comorbidities such as liver disease, renal disease, and smokers, again, um, had increased chance of readmissions. That's pretty interesting uh, data. Um, Hans, so uh, based on those findings, uh, how would you weigh up the limitations? Uh, you, you mentioned that there are important limitations we need to uh, bear in mind when interpreting the study. Uh, what limitations struck you about the study, and how should 
the chest audience interpret them? Yeah, um, my major um, view of this is um, limitation uh, goes to the case mix. Because as we can read from the, the study and from the tables, this is mostly surgical patients. Um, and in most other parts of the world, surgical patients comprise, let's say, 40, around percent of the admissions, and the rest is medical admission. At least it's, it's like that in Norway, that you don't have surgery or an acute surgical condition, but you come in with um, a different background. So um, I do find that case mix a little bit strange, at least according to my own experience, but also according to ICNAR, which is the, the intensive care registry in UK, that also have the same that medical patients or medical admission is in surplus of uh, the admissions in the ICU. So this means that I would very much like to see such a study done in a case mix which is more similar to the generalized ICU population, at least in, in Europe. Um, so I'm wondering what you say to that. Joanne? Yeah, no, I would agree that, and that might be a result of the case mix and the self-selection for the UK biobanks. That is a limitation in that the majority of these are surgical critical care admissions. However, most of them are emergency in their nature, so they are not, um, you know, uh, elective surgical patients. Three quarters of both cohorts are emergency surgical admissions. However, I would completely agree that a major limitation to this is the majority of them are surgical in nature. So I want to delve into that, uh, Joanne, because you had mentioned um, that this may represent what's happening with the COVID pandemic, but um, obviously the, the COVID patients, the, the big risk factors seem to be um, being obese, uh, being male, being uh, mm-hmm. over the age of 50. Um and I assume you didn't have any COVID patients in this data set. Um, so how would you extrapolate to that? Is it possible to extrapolate to that, or should we wait for more data? So I think there is more data emerging around long-term morbidity and mortality and healthcare utilisation in the COVID group. However, I think there's always learning to take from what we're seeing. So what we know, and this isn't the first study to show this, is that patients following critical care have a huge use of healthcare utilisation and acute healthcare utilisation in the year following discharge. And I think we need to think about how we can intervene in that. And that learning will absolutely be transferable to the COVID group in terms of what we can do and how we can do it. So it may be simple things. So For example, we know that about two-thirds of patients following discharge home will have problems with their medication if they've been in critical care. That's fairly rigorous evidence now. So that might be a driver for readmission to the hospital. So we have to think about simple things across the, the kind of patient pathway that we could interject with that could potentially support better living in the community and reduce healthcare utilization. So while there is, there is no COVID uh, patients from a critical care point in this data set, that doesn't mean that we can't take the kind of broad sweeps of learning from it and apply that to critical care survivors and how we might support them to live better in the community. Definitely. Uh, Hans, your response? Um, yes, I agree that um, there, there is learning points, but, but COVID patients 
is an example of a medical patient in the ICU. They come there because of a medical condition, not a surgical condition, although some of them was operated during their surgical stay. So that is a group that um, um, fell partly outside this. Uh, but COVID patients seems to be so different from any other similar patient, even the ordinary flu patients that we get in the hospital. So I'm cautious to uh, to to draw the learning points at the, at the moment because we, we do not know enough. For example, will a, pa a patient group admitted to the hospital but never going to the ICU, will they have more, less or the same post-hospitalization uh, uh, morbidity like um, a patient group with COVID who is um, intubated or ventilated in the ICU? Uh, intuitively, I would think that the latter latter group will have more problems in, in coping with life afterwards. But, of course, to do this with the same methodology that this, uh, this uh, present study has done, then we had to go back again and look at um, uh, biobank data in patients who, who have been admitted but not uh, into the ICU, but only the hospital. You could copy that in a way. But it's a very complicated study to do in COVID-19 patients, I think. But um, I'm open for it, but I haven't seen uh, evidence of this yet. We don't have the whole story about the post-COVID era yet at all. Yeah, we definitely will need a couple more years uh, to get the full uh, extent of the long-term effects of COVID. And we've definitely seen patients who, a year out, um, are still struggling uh, with brain fog. Um, Joanne, what limitations did you note in your study um, that you want the uh, audience to be aware of uh, when interpreting it? Um, so I, I think the, the main thing is that um, we don't have an ICU data. So we have very little in ICU data to really understand the kind of illness trajectory of these patients. And when we did this study, that wasn't linked to the UK Biobank, but just actually recently that has been. So we should, going forward, be able to look at um, the in-ICU data alongside the UK Biobank data, which will be incredibly exciting to look at. Um, and I think everything that Han said, the limitations that he's pointed out, it's a highly selective group and that's reflected in the kind of nature and the case mix that we've seen in this group. So, um, you know, we've seen a predominantly surgical group, but that's really about who select, was selected for the UK Biobank. Um, so, yeah, there's a number. And the, 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 but the, the good thing is about the biobank is that people continue to come back and continue to be assessed at the UK biobank. So hopefully some of the issues that we've seen can be addressed in future studies around this. Perfect. And Hans, um, what uh, take-home messages do you think our audience should have from the study and what future research studies should be done to address uh, the current research gaps? First, I would say that the model used in this study is absolutely worth copying for many centers who have access to, uh, to biobanks and to do it the same way you have done because we need confirmation studies on this. Um, if it is so, that given the same comorbidity burden or the same history of, of disease burden, uh, that the uh, the surplus of mortality is just because of the acute organ dysfunction that is 
particular for the ICU patients. Um, they further off um, have a similar mortality. It will be a, a good thing, but I, I, um, I will not embrace that yet. I, I do not think this is um, the final um, uh, piece of, of this puzzle. We will we we, we need more we need more 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 um, information to to make the whole jigsaw. But no, yeah, I definitely agree with you. This is just the beginning, and I think Joanne's gone to a really great start here to address this really important question of long-term outcomes. Joanne, what studies do you think you'd like to see conducted or you're planning to conduct to address these limitations? So um, I probably... Um I, I, I agree with the um, test earning extent with hands about um, we need more research in this area, more observational research to replicate, but we also need to do something as well. And I, I do worry that we keep replicating studies that move the arrow slightly with um, issues, but we now have a decade of evidence to show that we have a real issue with acute care um, reuse in the year following discharge from hospital, and I think the next part of uh, part of the research paradigm in this area has to be about interventions, and we need to think about how we try and support these patients better. And while I, I completely agree with Hans that this study, while it shows that mortality is different in the year following discharge, we we also know that we uh, were able to uniquely access some comorbidity data that other studies haven't. So. I think he's absolutely right. We need to keep building on that and keep looking at it. But in terms of the healthcare utilisation thinking around this, I really want to see the next kind of phase of research looking at how do we support these patients better? Actually, what type of interventions do they need? Can we do things to make sure that journeys are safer for patients as they transition from different areas of the hospital? So that's really, I'm quite, I think we can do a lot to try and support these patients and their caregivers better. And I'm really keen that that's where the research goes in the future. Hans, uh, Joanne brings up a pretty important point. Uh, sometimes we are looking too much instead of acting enough. Um, and and the, the, the response to that may be, well, we need to, we've only got so many resources and we want to make sure that we use our resources wisely and we don't want to go down a rabbit hole. Um, it seems as though that there's this contest between making sure that we have the right data to answer the right questions versus actually acting on the data so that patients do get better. What do you think? Yes, absolutely. Uh, I agree. And um, we need a lot of more data. Personally, I've been engaged in uh, what we call the very old intensive care patient project, uh, a project from the European Society of Intensive Care Medicine, and we have conducted now three large prospective studies in patients only in the old age group, the, the COVID patients, so although we had to go down from 80, which was the limit previously to 70, because in the beginning, Nobody above 75 was admitted to hospitals uh, in many places in, in, in Europe. But I also miss this in, in the present study as subgroup analysis of those patients who are elderly because we found it so many times that this patient group, they behave very much different than, um, than the rest of the ICU patients. They are a, a specific group that they need to, to study separately. So uh, I'd like to see... If you have enough patients above 80 in your study, 
that you maybe could publish a sub-study in the very old patients um, and look at the trajectories there in ICU patients versus hospital patients. So the, this is a challenge for you. That sounds, maybe maybe I'll email you after this and we could do that one together. I'm sure that we, we, will, we do have that data. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Um, so we are getting towards the end of this uh, podcast, and it's been a really interesting conversation uh, uh, listening to uh, the both of you. Um, Hans, I want to give you um, uh, the first chance just to um, uh, make any concluding remarks um, and any uh, last words that you want to leave with our audience. And then after that, I'll turn it to Joanne, who will give us her concluding remarks. Hans? Yes, I enjoyed this discussion very much, and I think uh, these kinds of discussion highlights um, uh, many things uh, in, in the study and also challenges that studies provoke. Um, I, I, I must again say I, I admire your study because the method you have used is novel, and it will pave the road for, for many more similar studies and increase our understanding of the post-ICU trajectories. So thank you. Thank you, Hans. Uh, Joanne? No, um, just thank you for the opportunity to um, take part. Again, I agree it's great to be able to have these type of discussions to kind of highlight the, the strengths and limitations of studies. And I think um, there's certainly this is a growing area um, where I think there's a lot of opportunity to improve our patient journey through the hospital. Um, and I think these type of studies give us the data to really start thinking about how we might do that. Well, thank you both. I've uh, really enjoyed your conversation and uh, the discussion. Um, a very big thank you to Hans and uh, Joanne, um, and a big thank you to our chess community for joining us. I'm Dominic Pepper, and this is a chess podcast. <laughs> <laughs>